The following audio is via a Skype call. Welcome to Talk Cosmos, the show where Sue Rose Minahan and guests unveil astrology's ancient archetypes that continually build the collective experiences in our unconsciousness. Get ready to find your free will from your roots in the stars. Sue Rose Minahan of Talk Cosmos on July 21st, 2018. And to remind, Talk Cosmos asks, what seeds do we grow? What are the intentional roots and meaningfulness of the astrological archetypes? And the archetypes are those that are centered on the month's sign, the planet, house, and symbol. This month, it's Cancer and the Crab and the Moon. And we are going to be actually including Leo. We're on the cusp at that liminal moment between one sign and the next, which is not just like a linear moment, but energetic transference of vibrational movement. Because as we know with quantum physics, life is vibrational and we're connected in so many ways. Liminality is as I have looked up, the quality of ambiguity or disorientation occurs in the middle stages of rituals. That's the definition, but actually it, it is in that energetic. There was an astrologer, Sarah Prebs, that really inspired me to look up that word liminal, uh, liminality, which, you know, because the sun and the moon are the luminary planets, or we call them the planets, they're the sun and the moon. And astrology involves all of the cosmos, all of the energies that is part of our nature. It is nature. It is the cosmos. It's as as above, as below. We're in the fifth week of Cancer. Tomorrow, the sun goes into Leo, just to reiterate. And so there's also an eclipse coming up this week that we will include in the conversation. So I'm going to immediately introduce our speaker. But first, I do need to remind people that at the half hour, we will take your questions or if you wish to add a comment. And after the announcement at the half hour, that number is 425-373-5527. But This evening, I will be introducing a special astrologer, Laura Tad, Ph.D., human scientist, Ph.D., internet, actually, no, not internet here. What I'm reading about is, is that she is a psychology astrologer, consultant, teaches, lectures, very active with the astrology community that is internationally on board members of regional groups. She blogs. She's on the well-renowned magazine, Mountain Astrologer, and currently writing an astrology book as a parenting tool, which will be the focus somewhat of our conversation tonight. And Laura's site is Mythic Sky, which is on our site, Talk Cosmos. If you Google that, you can reach Laura. And Laura uses compassion and humor to actualize your greatest potential rather than 
for your personal growth rather than prediction. So with this said, I welcome thoroughly. Hi, Laura. Thank you, Sue. It's good to be on. It is, indeed. So fascinating, this entire concept of, well, parenting. But it did remind me that between cancer and Capricorn, you know, at the IC mm-hmm. and the the MC, and for those non-astrologer, that's the root of a chart with the the, the high yeah, end. the Latin media colloquia, right? So it, it's middle sky, top of the sky is the eyes is MC, right? And so ilia colloquia, bottom of the sky. Yes, and so those are our parental roles, and then with Leo, we roles are a very prominent part of Leo. So there is this interesting dialogue, or not dialogue, but this combination of energies. But for parenting, I was thinking how, of course, as a child, we learn about our parental roles so that we can become that role ourselves. That's the ideal anyway. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the parenting... It's the astrology as a tool for parenting is a complex conversation. Um, but it's also looking at just the parent child relationship at whatever age we are, right? As adults, we're still often in similar psychological imprinting and interplay with our parents as we were when we were 15. Because the sinistry, the uh, way the two charts overlap and compare mathematically has not altered no matter how old everybody gets. Um, And there's maturation. And so there's ways in which maybe we can engage with challenging parts of the astrology that is more beneficial. But the sinistry is the sinistry is the sinistry. That's for the lifetime of two individuals um and it there's just there's endless unpacking that can happen with it to me um well put unpacking (laughs) so true and further as you have uh, is in our conversation as we both know but i just love the entire focus of the fact that you're bringing into this perspective that the moment the child, and so you, I'll let you expound, but I'll yeah. mention that the moment the child is born is that moment of that the, the adult was, was experiencing and it's this constant relationship. Yeah, so it was a number of years ago now. I was at a conference uh, that I, the IONS was hosting, the Institute of Noetic Sciences. They're uh, out in the uh, San Francisco area, the North Bay of San Francisco, mm-hmm. of the San Francisco area. And they're a institute that's doing a lot of the research and has been doing for decades of looking at things in the metaphysical world, but through a scientific lens. Um, they've done studies, you know, of hooking Tibetan monks up to EKG machines and measuring what's going on in their body and going, huh, okay, they're not just sitting there. Something's mm-hmm. happening because they can the machines are registering that it's something more than rest. Um, but so I was at a conference that they were hosting um, called the Child Spirit Conference. And I was in a lecture that had nothing to do with astrology. 
uh, when suddenly I had this epiphany aha moment of our charts are the transits our parents were experiencing when we were born. So yes, it's the synastry, but it was also transits and that we then become these locked moments in time for them. So there is the synastry, which is about the interpersonal dynamic and relationship with between a parent and a child, but that the child also then serves as a surrogate for holding in place that transit because it's really big karmic work that person's working on. And so they're needing that transit beyond the real time that that transit exists. For example, you know, my father and I have our Marses conjunct, right? My Mars is 27 Leo and his is 26. Mm. <laughs> and so he was in a Mars return when I was born. But every time we interact, he's in a Mars return. Yes, it's, it's, there is interpretation that you could, you could have as to how does that Mars conjunct Mars, what is the archetypal piece of that, and how is that expressed in our interpersonal relationship? But he's also in a Mars return. Yes. And curiously, two of my brothers have their Marses also conjunct my father's Mars. So apparently, it's really big karmic work he's doing, because he had five children and three of us have our Marses conjunct his. The, the, um, oh, go ahead, Sue. Well, no, this is just so powerful because it, one example, but a very powerful example, but the whole concept of realizing the dimensions of, for instance, karmic work, that we're here yeah. as a healing process, that this is our incubator, our family is, is a whole... Uh, tremendous um, dimension, you know. Yes. Yes, in perspective. Well, and part of how I've come to really see that more in the karmic sense is actually in some ways even more recently with wanting to do more research because I've found so little out there around blended families. Mm. And... You know, we talk about, oh, well, moon can be mother and sun is father or Saturn's father. But where are step parents? Yes. How does that dynamic show up when it's such an enormous part of our percentage of our culture at this point, at least in the West, the number of blended families, the number of stepchildren, of half siblings, of step siblings, step parents, and seeing how for somebody who becomes a step-parent, how that stepchild's chart aspects them, even though they didn't know that being when they were under those transits. They were still, live, the, the step-parents still lived through those transits. Those transits happened whether they were aware of that child being born or not. But then in meeting that child, maybe a decade later, two decades later, that transits brought back into their life suddenly. It is a healing. I personally experienced being a, a step-parent, and it wasn't official. I was actually in a, a, a common-law-type relationship for many, many years, and uh, but raised these, these children in that effort with this relationship through their uh, formative years until they were out of 
school, actually. I mean, mm-hmm. high school or into college. And, it, and reflecting on it, thought of so many concepts. One was gratitude, really, for having uh, the learning prospect because it, it, it essentially raising, being around children and the dynamics between your own self and the child is just so extraordinary without, you know, to experience. But also just that whole facet. I haven't really looked at the charts because I'm thinking what you're saying. There was so much healing. Sure. What you're saying is actually true. It it brings in sort of the miraculous, I guess it would be, synastry of of just life, you know, just the creation. Right, well, right. And so there's the synastry you have with your stepchildren, and that is reflective of the karmic work you may have together as souls. And you can extrapolate out of that that they facilitate an opportunity for you to do karmic work that is bigger than just the karma you have with them that is found in the synastry. Exactly. I agree with that. I personally felt, yep, there was... That archetypally, it may be this, the archetype doesn't change, but it's not just about them. No. It's no. not just it's about... It's like they're conduits. Their, conduits. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. Conduits or surrogates, they're holding the space mm-hmm. for that karmic work to... Or we all do that, right, for people. It's yeah, like we bring that in. It's like I work with clients, and if they have, you know, I've got a couple of clients there, it's like they've got no earth. Okay, well, wow. how does a client, how does somebody who has not a single planet in an earth sign get grounded? That's pretty tricky because there's nothing for them to pull upon. It's such a foreign archetype to engage with. And some of it is, okay, yes, they can physically engage. Engaging physically with the tactile world helps them. But also saying, okay, so you just need a lot of, like, earth people in your life. They help you. Ah, yes. They can, right? And so it's like you bring that in. You find... um, Compliments, exactly. That compliments and that people can live, can be that for us sometimes when we don't have that at our disposal for a tool set. Um, yeah. And so that's part of how this parenting and child piece has developed for me. It, it expands too with this idea of the, well, it's not just collaboration, but like the Davidson chart where <laughs> the, and I know for the non-astrologers, but this is where charts can be, uh, combined to, create a, a combination, a new chart, but a whole family can create that. So when people come sure. into the family or they leave the family, and this is something actually that you've introduced into my thinking, so to give credit back, but I, it, the whole idea there, because that's like a constant transit in itself. You think mm-hmm. of children uh, leaving the nest or else divorced families, you know, that, that try to assemble a family and then they separate into families and just the aunt. Sure. Yeah. Well, all of that can be there. And I think one of the things that's interesting, whether you're using a Davison or the composite, which is just two different ways of calculating the charts, you know, that a Davison is finding the day that's in the middle between the two people. Um, the middle part of, you know, what's in between March and September of, you know, versus the composite, which is just 
mathematically a midpoint, uh-huh. but um, that looking at the synastry of a child's chart to the, their parents' composite chart and how does the birth of that child alter the relationship. That's really key. I, yeah. Yeah, this excites me to no end it because um, it gives form. It gives form that's metaphysical, but there's something tangible about that. It's not just in your brain where you realize that these energies are in, being interjected, but you can actually look at it and with a composite and realize that, that you know, with each new pregnancy or each new child, whether it's adopted and I guess it wouldn't make a difference, would it, if it was... No, I mean, that's where I've been doing more and more sort of observation for myself and looking at stuff is that with blended families and seeing that the patterns hold up, these huge shifts that the stepchild brings into a dynamic, right? Where this couple's not couple that is the biolo- is not the, you know, not both biologically related to a child. And yet, so I have clients where you know, they sort of went the route, the, the general consensus these days among psychologists is that if you have children from a previous relationship and you're involved with somebody, you wait a year before introducing them to your partner so that you're, you know, there isn't sort of a revolving door of partners mm. in your children's lives. And so I have clients who they, you know, sort of following that protocol for the most part, waited, he waited a year before he entered, the father waited a year before he introduced his children to my client. And very shortly after he did, he then got custody. And in the, their composite Mars is exactly square his child's Mars within like half a degree. And so it radically changed the direction him, the, the, the kid coming into the relationship suddenly radically changed the direction of the relationship. And, but this was a step kid. This wasn't, you know, so the relationship changed as soon as the kid was brought into the dynamic, right. even though the child actually predates the relationship. Yeah. It, it, it. So it absolutely can hold up in terms of adoptive, you know, and, and blunt and stepchildren. And that's where I think that there is some more work that I think would really benefit the astrology community is that there isn't much that's out there that's really specifically pointing to adoption and blended families and how, where does that, you know, with, I've talked to a couple people who I know who are adopted and how, you know, that are astrologers and trying to unpack that for myself of where does that birth trauma show up at the same time that maybe your adoptive parents were fabulous and supportive and loving and constant support sources of nurturing. And yet there's this trauma of your birth parents not being there. And so how do both things show up in the chart and trying, starting to unpack where that may thematically show up in terms of archetype? Well, it does get complicated. I'm thinking, you know, and, and all of a sudden my mind starts thinking of these various family units. I have a, well, a, a friend whose um, uh, son-in-law has adopted, was adopted, and then 
when he married, his birth parents uh, surfaced, and it turned out that they were still friends. They had never married, and they both had families. So now his children have, this is my friend's grandchildren, yeah. have three sets of grandparents, well, three or four, how many? Anyway, a lot of <laughs> a lot of them, right? And it's just it, the, the multiplicity expounds. So I suppose, really, uh, well, then my brain flashes to the idea. Okay, the holidays. So let's say children uh, are are the well, the, the, you might go see this set of parents, or you might see that set of parents, but the family group that's there, I suppose that combined in their as a chart the composite would would be effective versus if what what that i'm trying to figure out the question in other words would there be could you do that like for instance say let's say you're seeing this part of the family would that be a composite for that family at that time or would you bring in okay yeah I, i don't see why one couldn't do that is i mean i i grew up with my parents divorced when I was a child. And so I've got the family unit that's my mom and my brother and my stepdad and the family unit that's my dad and my stepmom and their kids. And both are my family. It's all my family. No, I'm same here. I have. Right. (laughs) There's many, many layers. I wouldn't combine all. I wouldn't bring my mom and stepdad into the composite chart of my dad and stepmom because they're not it's two separate family units okay. in a lot of ways so that i would help. look at my sinistry with both but mm-hmm. at least in our dynamic as a family we don't all hang out together so but that does show very much how how the energies of four divorced uh, uh children such as myself too have um, or in many families, you know, where you have these different sets of, of groups. Now, what about cousins? I suppose that would bring in a new emphasis, or would that be too... Or is sure, that... I think that you can look at... I think, again, I, I, well, one of the things that I find fascinating looking at doing family stuff are the patterns mm. that show up. And so then I would absolutely be looking at cousins because it's saying, well, what's the family narrative? What's the family karma? What are the family archetypes that are being presented? And so when I spoke at UAC, I have a slide of you know, like 23 people, 23 generations, 23 people. So that's getting into cousins and aunts and uncles. Wow. Um, not a single earth son. My. Goodness. Out of twenty-three people, that's extraordinary. Well, perhaps Every, not, but well, it seems primarily like primarily fire and water with a little some air, and but not a single Earth sun. That would be a. So there's some family story there. Okay, well, how much, you know, and you could start filling it in with as much data as you wanted. Okay, well, so what about the moon? What about Mercury? And, and then you could get into aspects. Or one of the other things I found, just looking at half of that, a part of that family, just looking at like 11 people of that 21, three, but looking at three generations, and out of 11 people, nine of them, I think I was telling you this when we were chatting the other day, 
nine of them have either the a Scorpio Taurus nodal axis or a second eighth house nodal axis. Their nodes are in the second and eighth house. We were we were discussing this, which really begins to think about resources and the exchange of resources right. that hold. So for this particular family, there's some really big archetypal story and family karma around resource, right? That both Scorpio and Taurus are linked to resources, right? Taurus being personal resources, Scorpio being shared resources, as is the second and eighth house. Which reminded me that in my own family, uh, there is this repeating uh, nodal emphasis or, or various energetic of um, another axis, which is uh, Leo Aquarius. They get reversed um, nodes. Sure, right. And now, I mean, that shows yeah. up with this family is the grandfather was Scorpio Taurus. The grandmother was Taurus Scorpio. Her children, who were twins, are Taurus Scorpio. The son had a daughter who is Taurus Scorpio. He's, his second wife was a Scorpio, was a Taurus Scorpio. Yeah, there could be, this is a really important uh, feature to present, as you say, for astrology, because yeah. the, the, we're in relationship. We have a reason why we, well, there's so many purposes to realize, but one of them is our connection with our family and to see, as you say, the pattern that is evident to see how it could be coming up. I know that. Yeah, I mean, it's it. I think it's very helpful in understanding what the family story is and why, for generations, you can there can be a dynamic that's played out over and over and over and over again. And then, okay, well, maybe you may still you as an individual may fit within that paradigm and that archetypal patterning. But there's clearly something that's needing to be learned there or it wouldn't keep showing up. Yes. And so, oh, well, maybe you can be the one that breaks the cycle for the family. Well, yawns, I believe, as I was saying, have a lot of uh, connection with that, that it is a yawn for those that aren't familiar is where you have um, energies. There's one that's sextile two planets, and then they are both in conjunct, meaning that it's not easy to coordinate that energy, a little bit like oil and vinegar. You can make perhaps some good salad dressing, but it takes some effort. But it, from what the Yod book suggested was is that this was an inherited con- condition, you might say, or con- energy, mm. energy coming from families' uh, history that wasn't resolved and there wasn't a blueprint for it, a role and so it was really up to the self to um, to work. I have one, and it mm-hmm. is with that uh, Jupiter in the Aquarius that that same energy of the you might say creativity and the mm, betterment or the trauma. <laughs> I mean, so many <laughs> yes, different ways of putting it. We're going to come right back. If people do want to call, we have this number that you can call. And talk to either Laura or myself about any questions or comments. And it's our number is 425-373-5527 for Talk Cosmos. And we have Laura Tad on tonight. Thank you. 
take a break from this week's edition of Talk Cosmos, let's take a look at this cycle's archetype. Currently, we are in the period of cancer. By leaving a cycle based on connecting mental communication to the external, the energy of cancer involves emotions, which create our personal story through our emotional associations and attachments. As a cardinal water sign that is nurturing, cancer needs to process emotions in one's own internal rhythm of cycles in order to complete an evolution. Hello, this is Catherine Zumstein of EarthSkyAstrology.com, and you're listening to Talk Cosmos on Alternative Talk, 1150 AM, where we discuss the meaningfulness of our roots in the stars. Hi, everybody. Thank you for listening. Laura Tad, PhD with Mythic Skies, is with us tonight. And we're talking about Cancer and Leo, that in-between time with parenting. And if you are calling in, fine. Otherwise, we will continue to yak and talk. And I'm going to, there's a couple of things. We will be talking about the eclipse, but also water. Oh, twins. That's what I had so many yes. thoughts. <laughs> All right. I'm, oh, yeah. No, it's, it's in a weekend workshop for sure, talking about this stuff. Yeah. So, so your question about twins. Yes. What, Actually, um, well, I mean, my father's a twin, and I think um, they he happens to be 20 minutes younger than his sister, so their sons are actually in different houses. Um, so that does make them a little more distinctly different and their astrology a little more distinctly different. Um, but what I have seen, I mean, Part of what I like for myself, having that resource of having twins in my life and being able to pull upon that as example, is that while astrology reveals a lot of information, it doesn't tell us the gender of the individual. It doesn't tell us their race or their sexual orientation or their gender identification. And so all of that colors how the charts lived out. Right. So my dad has a twin sister and by virtue of him being a boy and her being a girl and then being born in the forties, they were raised entirely differently. Hmm. And even though they're twins, right. But what was expected of a boy born post world war two, 1940s America versus a girl was really different. And so that's that. All it, the archetypes are still there, but they're played out differently. They're lived into differently um, because of external factors. Yes, in fact, that's how really, I suppose, the free will. Yeah, it's a cultural free will, but on a personal level too, because you can have the same plot of land, for instance, or the same menu, but how people or ingredients for, for dinner, but yet people, how they plant the earth, or I'm using two analogies here, or else how <laughs> the ingredients that they put together for the dinner, you know, it all varies. And in fact, that really gets to the, 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 the eclipse coming up, mm -hmm. because this energy that you're bringing up with, as an example of, the, of your, you know, the, a girl and a boy, a male and a female, yeah. 
being born. Because with the eclipse, um, I'm, I'm trying, oh, I'm looking at my mother's chart, not the eclipse chart. But it, but it has, it is a full moon, and mm -hmm. it is four degrees Aquarius and Leo, south node in Aquarius with Mars. They're attached, so there really is, with the the moon, you know, in the north with the sun, so there is somewhat this feminine and this masculine energy that's been rather consistently over the last couple weeks with mm -hmm. Venus. Yeah, Venus isn't really involved. But no, but I think the Mars retrograde is part of that. Um, that there's Mars is often thought of as more yang, right, and more masculine and um, directive of energy, and yet retrograde motion is more receptive and inward and reflective. And so you have the most sort of masculine or one of the most masculine archetypally planets in the, in the sky operating in a more receptive manner because it's retrograde. So that, I think, is also indicative of that yin-yang male-female energy. Yes. And it, that it's in Aquarius, which is sort of the nebulous non-gender on, it, it, there's a both and with Aquarius as an archetype in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. It's not really sort of masculine or feminine. Yeah, objective. It's, yeah. And then plus Uranus is square it. And by square, for those folks, that means energy is, well, it's 90 degrees, but it, because everything is mathematical here, but but with Uranus in Taurus, come to think that also gives more of that yin type, mm -hmm. Taurus being yin. So perhaps it is one step of us trying to coordinate that that sun in Leo uh, uh, energy that is yang being receptive, as you say, with the... Yeah. Mars. I mean, I think it, it's interesting. I did... Um, just out of curiosity, I did some research to see when were some other times in history that we had a total lunar eclipse, which is the one that's coming up, um, in, with the, the moon being in Aquarius. Mm. Um, and since 1901, it has only happened three other times that we have had a total lunar eclipse in Aquarius, um, and one of them, they all had Mars kind of, and so there was one in, it's actually almost to the day of the one coming up, July 26, 1953, there was an eclipse with the moon and sun at three degrees, Aquarius Leo, and Mars was at 27 degrees Cancer. So it's a little wide, but you could pull that Mars into the conjunction of the sun. Um, so the same part of the sky. Yes, you could. Um, August 6th, 1971, with the sun moon at 13 degrees and Mars at 17 Aquarius. So that's the closest we get, pretty close to what we have coming up. And then August 16th, 1989, at 24 degrees, uh, Aquarius Leo, and Mars at uh, 
eight degrees Virgo. So that's a little wide to bring that in to me, but um, it's curious that in 65 years, this is the only the fourth one, and Mars was in play with all of them, kind of. It is significant, and particularly yeah. remembering that Mars is closest. Well, the, okay, right now it is one minute shy of the longest maximum uh, uh, total eclipse. I think it's one hour and 47 minutes is maximum, which was almost within just a few various seconds in 1971. But this one, I think, is one hour and 46 minutes, which is still very close. Yeah. So, but it's very, and it's also close to the uh, Earth. It's Mm -hmm. instead of 140 million plus minus miles, it's 40,000 or 40 million. I should get my numbers straight, but it is like one third closer. That's right. I mean, that's part of why it's why we experience it as retrograde, right? We planets are appear retrograde when they're closest to the earth. That this is true. Thank you for, yeah. for correcting. So that's, part but it's of, the so, closest in 60,000 years. Now, I don't know besides the 1971, I mean, just to add to these fascinating yeah. ideas, because I had not realized that there were so few. I know I keep hearing that Mars retrograde is very rare which it is, but also... Well, Mars retrograde, I mean, it's... No, I meant in in Aquarius, in Aquarius. Oh, in Aquarius, yes. Yeah, my apology. (laughs) Yes, but but it is fascinating to think that that, uh, Mars has been uh, in several... It's been tied into the eclipses, the, the total lunar Aquarian eclipses for a century or for 65 years, but there wasn't a Aquarius eclipse in the 20th century prior to 1953. Um, well, so yeah, you could say I, I didn't go back to the 19th century to see when the no, one was previously. But, <laughs> no, Laura, I think it's great. Uh, right. yes. So in, you know, over a hundred years, we've had four. And Mars is pulled into all of them. For the United States, and looking at this chart, uh, it is fascinating because not only is our south node six degrees Aquarius, which right now we're having, we've had a, a nodal Mars return. Is passing over that. But our moon, yes, and when you mention these other uh, eclipses from the past, like 1989, you were saying it was 24 degrees. Our moon, the United States moon, is 27 degrees Aquarius. So, mm. Without looking at the rest of the chart here, but I am thinking that that it is uh, significant how... Well, that was when 1989 was Gorbachev pulled down the wall, oh. right? Am I remembering that? I'm sure you're right. I, I it, Correctly? That could well be. I... Right, the the official end of the Cold War, which is kind of interesting given what's going on politically at the moment. Um, yeah, there are these these themes that to remind our audience, uh, as astrologers are aware. But it, it is a 
a theme that picks up on a new, like a sequel. You know, not that it'll go in the same direction, but it has some elements. So, yes, you're very, that's a good reminder. Um, And I did look in 71 to see what that might have been about. And it was interesting. There was the Apollo 13 got back to 15, I think it was. Apollo 15 Mm. um, got back to Earth the day after the eclipse. Um, which was interesting. Yeah, so it was. It would have been after the eclipse. It was November 9th, 2009 was when the Berlin Wall came down. But that's pretty close. I mean, you're talking a couple months, and eclipses do have this sort of six-month swath of influence. At least, um, yes. And then February 90, I think, was when Nelson Mandela was released from prison. Um, so... That, but in terms of the U.S. and what that 1989 eclipse may have been connected, given that it hit the U.S. moon, or it was, you know, in alignment with the U.S. moon, um, that it brought in these shifts. Um, and so it'll be curious to see how it's earlier degree-wise this time um, than it was in 89, you know, significantly by, you know, 21 degrees. Um but it is or on, 20, our no- on our nodes. 20 degrees, yeah. Yes. But and it's then- on the nodes. And um, it seems like there's a bit of a tipping point that this is, you know, eclipses are tricky because they both reveal and hide things. Yes. For right? their very nature, that's so true because the light, it is about that energy. That light is eclipsed. It's it's right not there it's it's a rebooting of of a direction and uh, i i think all of us are feeling it in different ways and certainly the united states it's very significant it's well there's other uh events happening as we know in 2020 with pluto and saturn connecting but right now this seems like a stepping stone for us to really connect because Aquarius is as far uh, uh, social and it is for the betterment. It is. And it's the innovator. And they, you know, I, I described to clients, I describe Aquarius as like Aquarius reinvents the need for the wheel. Ah. It doesn't reinvent the wheel. It's like, it's beyond oh. that. It's like it reinvents the need for the wheel. I love that. Um, and you know, so because it's all about being innovative and cutting edge and revolutionary and forward thinking and sort of, you know, the way Steve Jobs would talk about the technology that Apple would put out is that he was designing products that people didn't know they wanted. Mm. Yes. That's right. And that's how he would operate. He wasn't inventing what people were asking for. He was inventing the stuff they didn't even know they wanted. And it's part of why Apple has had the success that they have had and the innovation that they've had. Um, and so I think part of what this eclipse brings in is like, you know, it's a little tricky because Aquarius is part of that Uranian Aquarian expect the unexpected archetype. Right. And so it's like, well, what is it going to mean? Get ready for a whole bunch of unexpected stuff, <laughs> you know, but 
it's like, but there's a trickster quality in some ways to Aquarius. And so it's sort of like, as soon as you predict that it will be something, it won't be that because it has to be unexpected. And it needs to bring us back to our authentic self, the, the real deal. And so from that standpoint, if we're not getting the message, there's going to be these shock waves that somehow leave little choice except to regroup and, and, and remobilize. So really, if we can continue to, to, to consider our values. I mean, it is, Iran is, for, is in Taurus, so it does want us to consider our resources and our values. Absolutely. I don't think, I think that the Uranus and Taurus, and it, it's going to go retrograde and it'll get out and it'll be, you know, back then in next year, but it is reassessing our values at a really profound, pretty profound level. Um, and, and I think the Uranus and Taurus period of time will be also about revolutioning our, revolutionizing our relationship with the earth. Absolutely. Yes. Earth itself. Uh, our... And I think that that will be the period of time where we either start to correct our mistakes in terms of how humanity has treated the earth and we can move back some or, you know, get we or the tipping point of no return in terms of global warming, in terms of, you know, all of that. Um, but that's another that's yes. another talk. Well, the mother of necessity comes to mind somehow, I think, through the unknown, which always when we get these enormous shifts, which, as you're speaking of Iran, is, is shifts. It's these lightning bolts of vision that we didn't see, and but we see it. And mm-hmm. and it, it does uh, require that, that, that people through the changes, readapt and that. And I'm thinking right now, just with this uh, full moon, which is between mm-hmm. the moon and the, the sun, which is exactly what we were talking somewhat with tonight because we're still in the sign of cancer and tomorrow is, is Leo. And, of course, the moon represents cancer and the sun represents Leo, even though the moon happens at the full moon to be in Aquarius. And, and for those people that aren't astrologers, you know, it's the cycles. They go through signs. But the point is, is that it, this many, in many ways, the full moon will be, I would think, asking us to adapt to our parental child self. There's always that parental child. Do, would you say with a full moon? I hadn't thought of that before, but it is between. Um, hmm. Well... I don't know. I mean, I think the moon in Aquarius, there's a piece around revolutionizing our, in it, coming up with new ways of how we are emotive, right? Innovative emotional expression with moon in Aquarius. Um, how to, you know, I think there's a couple signs that often get misunderstood with the moon I, when people are born with it, right? Moon in Aquarius is similar, I've found, to Capricorn moons. Um, are misunderstood as to how sensitive they are. Mm, yes, I agree. Um, they just that, don't necessarily know 
the usage of emotion because it's more of a looked upon objectively rather than just experienced and, and expressed. Would you? Well, and I think for the Aquarian moon, you know, there's this, they're feeling things for the world, oh. <laughs> right? It's like this collective emotion because Aquarius is the humanitarian. It's concerned about humanity. <laughs> so it's hard to be, it's harder to have a one-on-one emotional exchange when like you're emotionally concerned about the every human being on the planet. Um, and so there's the, there is a collectiveness to the, the moon in Aquarius. How are things going to affect humanity? And in contrast to Leo, that's so self-oriented. Beautiful. Yeah. And I think that's part of this eclipse. That's part of this, okay, are we going to be self-focused or collective-focused? Yes. Is it going to be me and what I want and what I need and what's right for my little world and my immediate circle and who I can see? Or are we going to have to think collectively and think globally and, and be concerned? Well, they do, they do bridge because Leo is so mag, uh, and I'm saying Leo, the sun, and it's in, uh, it's so magmonious. It, it, generous and giving and loving there is that energy of course and then again it, there can be that shadow whether it's for self or others and the moon although it is in aquarius can be tribal it's like my own and so mm-hmm. it's like is that tribe going to be in my own little clan or is it going to be the whole of humanity there's all these which i suppose is really going back to Uranus in 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 Taurus, which is the values, you know, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there's a piece of that that, and I think it's, it's pulled, Uranus and Taurus is pulled into this eclipse, right? You can't sort of not bring in that square. Um, and I wrote an article for the Mountain Astrologer a few years ago um, where I spoke about how um, the gift of squares. <laughs> that squares hold the tension between archetypes that that and really with the eclipse it's a t-square but um that that sun in leo which will be there long after the eclipse is done it'll still you know it it can't go too far into the egoic self-centeredness because that Uranus and Taurus, it collides with that Uranus and Taurus. That's like, hmm, but what, what do you value? This isn't in line with your value system. You need to revolutionize things. Mm-hmm. It holds that tension that keeps, and that Uranus and Taurus can't be as stuck, potentially, because the Leo wants to play. <laughs> the Leo wants creative outlets and expressions and and can't just sort of stay stagnant Makes so sense. it can hold that tension. Um, but really with the eclipse in Uranus, we're dealing with a T-square, yeah. right? So there, cause it's squaring both the sun and the moon. And so the release out of the tension of a T-square is its polarity point, the opposite, right? 180 degrees away. 
So looking towards early Scorpio. I don't know why. That's absolutely right. This tension. And in that sense, well, it's very wide with Jupiter. Jupiter is moving. Well, yeah, it, I mean, it's 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 still can T square, I guess, to the eclipse, though. I mean, to the uh, to the nodes, three well, degrees. That's ten. So it's a wide. So yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, it's Jupiter is going to fly now that it's direct. Because it's completely out of Scorpio by November, so it's it's not even halfway through Scorpio, and it's going to be out of Scorpio mm. in a few months. Um, and throughout but, the conversation tonight, I like the reminder that you're bringing in, like for instance, you were holding the the the, ten, the square of the tension of um, of, of archetypes. In other words, it's, it's not just a passing but it's a real statement of connection that needs to be for resolution and it reminds me too with the parental going back to the earlier part of our conversation about the the chart that each person brings in is not is their personal statement of everything that they're coming in for soul growth as one perspective Mm -hmm. um, but also from that dialogue that 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 building block, you might say, between the parent or the parental energies and the child, but both have these these ongoing uh, um, stories. Or, or sure, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, I mean it. It that's where I you know I work with adult children, you know, ch- adults and looking at their parents' charts and their relationship and the synastry that's there and going. Okay, this is the dynamic. It's it's always present. It's always there. Um, the challenge with astrology sometimes is like we have free will, right? Yeah. It's, sometimes it sucks that we have free. Will. It's really a lot about free will. And it is. It really those relationships that are our triggers and our fuel for growth that some people right. in their charts it is the parental axis that that provides that stimulus and it's and it can be that fuel for growth but if the other person doesn't want to grow there's not much you can do about it well that's true it gets back to the whole <laughs> opono opono where it's really one's own responsibility that is absolutely the, the truth of it so true. Before we go, we have a few minutes here. I do want to thank Laura, and we'll have a moment to, so she can sign off. Laura Tad of Mythic Sky. You can check Laura's contact on Top Cosmos. And next week we have Bear River, who's a Seattle light, and we'll be actually beginning. Leo, so that'll be a new dimension to to work with about our manifestation, our legacy, the full flowering of this these people that we are. So, Laura, it's been a delight. 
we have about a minute. If you have something that you would like to conclude, I'm all ears. You are. <laughs> um, well, no, yeah, I think we've covered a lot in this short amount of time. Um, and yeah, oh, tell me about your book. You've got a book. Let's well, hear I'm, about that. there's an ebook that's on my website that talks about parent using astrology as a parenting tool, and I'm expand. I'm currently writing and working on expanding that um, into a more, you know, actual sort of tome. It's you know, it's a 20 page ebook currently. So I'm I'm expand expanding on that and doing research and actively working on that. But that's not anything that's what will be even, the name. You know, and then um, we'll have to go. Well, it may be similar to what I have now, which is stellar parenting. Ooh. Uh, astrology is a tool for the understanding the parent-child dynamic. But, oh, I yeah. know you'll go into it in such beautiful depth. You're so com- brilliant, and I it's, it's oh, been a treat. <laughs> so. Well, it's been lovely to be on. Thanks, Sue. It's <laughs> good to connect. All right. Till again. All right. Thank you for listening to Talk Cosmos, the show where Sue Rose Minahan and guests unveil astrology's ancient archetypes that continually build the collective experiences in our unconsciousness. Be sure to tune in next Saturday at 6 p.m. to continue finding your roots in the stars. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.